Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Why I Make Art, my book based on the Sound and Vision podcast is now available. Many thanks to all those who pre-ordered the book. It's 336 pages filled with quotes by the many artists on this podcast, words of wisdom, Features on 30 artists, some of the guest book artist sketches, color images of the work, an introduction by Rishikesh Hirway of Song Exploder. It's out on Altelier Editions, and it's distributed by Artbook DAP, and it's available on their websites, as well as Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, and other places that you can get books. It's $25, and in my opinion, it's well worth it. You can order a copy today at altelier-editions.com or artbook.com. There's already been an incredible response, and so many of you have sent me messages and saying you've ordered the book, and that some of you have already gotten a copy of it. Thanks so much for that, and uh, if you want to support this podcast and you're really interested in these artists, then uh, pick one up. Thanks so much for the support. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden make their signature line of acrylic paints, core watercolors, and Williamsburg oils. I'm starting a new group of paintings, and I'm really excited to get into it with my golden gesso, matte mediums, and my golden acrylics. I've been using golden for over 20 years, and it's never failed me in the studio. The new line of So Flat gives a supremely matte surface, and if you're after shine, the gloss varnish does an amazing job. It's an employee-owned company based in upstate New York. Golden's available in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Based in Seattle, Fulcrum makes incredible coffee that you can have delivered to your door. They have subscription services where you can have different blends delivered that you tailor to your favorite balance of coffee beans. You could save 20% on your order by entering the code ALFREDSTUDIO when you order from their site. Check out their amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Alex Dodge is a visual artist who lives and works in Brooklyn, New York, and Tokyo, Japan. His studio practice has consistently explored the promise of technology as it intersects and shapes human experience. His work is deftly located between new media and traditional fine art disciplines, including painting, printmaking, and sculpture. His works are in the collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He has a BFA in painting from the Rhode Island School of Design, and he went to New York University's Interactive Telecommunication Program, the MPS. I spoke to Alex about his early days in his noise band, figuring out how to make paintings, working in a gallery, going back to school, and much more. Here's our conversation. All I need is an audio track. It's not like writing music. Did you did you have any history in making music? I, I do. Yeah, well, I, was say, yeah, I mean... You strike me as someone who might have fiddled with some music. <laughs> I did. I mean, like... I think the my first attempts at making music... Um, uh, post high school, Denver, Colorado was noise band that I was in. Um, 
Not with two good friends <laughs> and yeah did what and, did you play guitar well so i did have a guitar um i made a lot of instruments uh, I, I wound my own pickups and made some very improvised stringed instruments um with uh, homemade pickups um there's a lot of before i knew what circuit bending was that was like a casio keyboards dissected and uh, like little sampler keyboards and doing stuff with that and then and then we had like real keyboards we had like a korg i think an early korg m1 or something like that but it was just kind of like whatever we could cobble together reel to reel um tape recorders from the the dollar store or not from him from the thrift store or whatever and and um yeah it was a lot of fun though we made some pretty noisy noise what were you <laughs> What were your influences back then? I would say that, you know, like before, and this is, it's strange, you know, like the way that Japan sort of entered into my life, but back then the big influence was Masami Akito. Okay. Uh, Merzbao. Well, so, how did you get, well, how old were you at this point? I mean, I think that this was probably, this was. Were you talking high school? I, sorry, I missed that. Was it high school? Yeah, I think that this was probably towards right towards the end of high school. So we're probably like okay. talking like 94, 93, 94, 95, probably. So those are the years that I was doing that. Yeah, yeah I think that's, a, that's the time when we, you know, those who are in, inclined, you start reaching out a little. You know, because yeah. I was going down <laughs> that, the other side of the noise wormhole where it was like My Bloody Valentine and spiritualized and all that stuff. Oh, Which yeah, but see, I was listening to that stuff, stuff too. You know? Yeah, no, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that I, was also there. And yeah, Merzbao was like kind of the, like the extreme. And so like, you know, like you always gravitate. I mean, I think that at least for me, like you would kind of find your poles and, and on one side it was, you know, stuff that was noise, but something that you could kind of um, like warmer kind of noise that you could drift into. Yeah. Um, and then Merzbao was just like this angst from another planet that we didn't understand but was very very intriguing it was really alien to to us and we were really compelled by um i think what he was doing technically and it was you know not you know it, it really was a, a different way of making making sound you know he was a lot of oh i don't remember exactly about shortwave radio stuff or like anything it was just junk you know anything yeah. that he could find but he was really adept at understanding how to to use that in, in a masterful way it wasn't just you know if you listen to and i think i still have all my my old mercy vinyl and stuff like that and it's i haven't listened to it in forever but it's you know real real nuance and subtlety in there even though it's blasting right. you know <laughs> all <laughs> assault. yeah yeah i never to be honest i never it's funny because you know i i heard it i heard you know, stuff like the Boredoms and those bands. I never dug deep into that side of it because I think at mm. that stage in my life, I started getting more interested into the electronic version of that stuff. So right. where things were yeah. getting abstract with electronic and I just went that way. And like I had a lot of friends growing up who were like metal heads who moved into aggressive music and other genres when metal right. wasn't yeah. okay anymore, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it was like, okay, I got to graduate from Megadeth. Now where do I go? You know, and, and yeah, some there were like those, those roads that I think kind of led back to some of those places. But like, yeah, there was the metal and then there was the industrial. They all had different uh, kind of relationships with, you know, the electronic sound and and um, 
and other, other things that were coming out of there. But I think I, I really understood noise as performance, though. And yeah. although we did do recordings, and some of those were better than others uh, in the band that we had, but it was very clear that it was a performative thing, and that it was really about the audience and really about that um, right. that that interaction. And usually in Denver, in the '90s, it was small rooms, you know. Yeah, uh, once right. once we we yeah. played a, a couple of theaters very you know but these were you know rare things they were very intimate very intimate shows so yeah it, you know that kind of music is so i mean most of the, i don't know about most of the time a lot of it's improvisational you know and it is that like kind of oh, yeah, dialogue clear. with the yeah. crowd you know mm-hmm. and um you know because i was in a band and we played a lot of you know we played with a lot of different kinds of musicians but i remember playing a couple shows with uh Arabon radar and just being oh yeah like, so they were big they were we were big fans of them as yeah, well they, so it was just like what did what just happened to my face <laughs> you yeah, know exactly. like after that show yeah. you know just like a little divey places or like i don't know we always played i felt like we played a lot of shows in those um federal organization of eagles or like places like knights of columbus you know like oh those, yeah like absolutely or whatever I, they were I, 100% know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we played in places like that as well, especially we did a very short Southwest tour. I think we played Albuquerque and a couple other places and um and yeah, there were definitely places like that that we would play in. And They're sometimes you know you'd have Oh yeah, it was great. Sometimes you'd have like 12 people show up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they'd be so packed that you're like this can't yeah. be illegal that this many kids are in this room right now because if that, something, yeah, definitely some of those as something well. Something happens, yeah. we're all like getting trampled. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I remember some were, nights like that. Those were fun shows. I I often I mean not to sound old, but I I often wonder and I'll talk about it, is like I wonder if those basement shows still happen anymore. Like that's what i wondered too happens. i will say that i i have been to one i had been to one basement show prior to covid and yeah. it made me really excited because it was a, a friend of a friend's band and they had turned uh, a basement in bed into a full-on illegal venue you know it's like and they were selling drinks and it was like and i was like wow this is awesome that this still exists and they had you know a couple acts play but then the best part of it was just uh spontaneous um breakdancing battle erupted in Whoa, the middle nice. of the, and i was like this yeah, i mean I, I was like this is makes me so happy that this still exists in new york and holy nostalgia did exactly, they pull out some yeah. uh cardboard they did they had <laughs> really they, they put cardboard down oh and God. um and it, i i just like you know i didn't know that this still happened but it did so that so yeah i think that they definitely must still be happening i mean i just wandered into that i just happened to be connected enough to this uh to a person who was doing that and and I don't yeah. know. If, I mean, I imagine that they're still, they might still be doing it there. But I, I guess there's a contingent of people who know. I mean, it just seems like whenever we were younger, because I think I'm just a few years older than you. You know, every show was just a show where people brought their gear. You know, yeah. now it, yeah. I, I just wonder what the percentage is of shows where people actually all play instruments, or and and that's not judgy at all. I'm some of mm. my favorite stuff in the world is like you know laptop or whatever you know oh, absolutely yeah it's just yeah. the the like how many bands are just getting in a van with gear and going on tour these days it's got to yeah, be a, yeah. a, a slight percentage of what it used to be oh i i really imagine that's probably true yeah what was your band's name we were called 33.3 nice that's yeah good. we recorded um two records the first one was it an accident basically was it Yale Norfolk? Because one of the guys in the band was 
um, teaching as part of the in between the two years. And um, we played a show there just for fun. And uh, two guys from Germany who were part of the music program happened to see us play. Mm-hmm. And they said, why don't you come back and we'll record some songs in this like beautiful like orchestra pit sort of thing they had. Oh, there. amazing. Yeah. And um, yeah. and the second one was at Electrical with, at Steve Albini's studio, which was wow. with Bob <laughs> that's, Weston. So that's incredible. Two yeah. very different ways to record records. You know? Very what much. What about your yeah, band? What were you called? They were called Nuclepsia, which is a st- strange... Um, we I think for when we were playing, when we were first kind of jamming before the band kind of had formed, there was a medical dictionary. Mm-hmm. I think it was a dictionary of medical terms or maybe psychological disorders or something like that. But maybe it's pronounced nooclepsia, but it's uh, the it's the condition where you think that someone else is stealing your thoughts. Whoa. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah, so I mean it's I don't know why, but yeah, that was um that's uh, that's what the, where the name came from. And actually, I think that so it's de- I definitely um this, there was three members, myself, uh, Chris Turner, and Ruth Seringer. And Chris is still still playing under that name. So he's in Chicago. Oh, wow. Yeah, nice. everyone moved from Denver to Chicago, except for me. I went went east. Uh, when I went to art school, the band kind of disbanded for the most part, or became two uh, out of three. And um, yeah, so that was... And then I I think that when I, when I got to art school um, at RISD... I it was a little bit it was a little bit um, sad actually to leave that kind of stuff behind because I think it was a really important part. I mean, I I tried to get engaged back in kind of performance at one point throughout um, my four years there, but I think that yeah, it was something about leaving that behind, and I think it was very. I I kind of made that decision that like it was like okay, now this is this is painting time, and right. yeah. that's not gonna gonna be part of the thing anymore. Uh, I don't know why that that had to be the case, but it seemed like that was just. I mean, I think that when I got into when I started um, an undergrad, it just was like a very you know it's like okay, this is serious. We're we're going to be serious and, and do serious paintings now, and right. so maybe that was part of it. But <laughs> yeah, and well, you had a feeling too that, or at least back then, it, it felt like maybe you have to if you really want to be serious about it, you got to pick. That's right. Yeah. You can't just like nowadays if you don't do five things it's like well you know yeah. what a lazy son <laughs> you know it's like and then i find myself the rest of my life always trying to pick or choose between you know things and it's like you know it's uh right for the for the years when when i was you know working uh daytime as a as a as a dealer as a you know working in a gallery and then nights and weekends in the studio and being able to do those two things until there's always and then it's like you know these cataclysmic cataclysmic events that that oftentimes force you to choose and in that case it was uh uh, 2008 oh yeah crisis and it was like okay so what are you going to do are you going to are you going to be a dealer are you going to continue to help build other people's work and careers or or are you going to um you know go the other way and for me it was clear at that moment that it was uh I really did not have what it took to be a good salesperson, a good dealer. <laughs> being able, I mean, I, I really had loved working with artists on that level. And yeah. I really, you know, the years that I spent, um, you know, working at CRG, um, you know, it's it's made it, it you know, I have su- such an immense respect for the people that do that work. 
and you know, right. it's, yeah, of it's course, and of course, we depend on them. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, ultimately, yeah, it's it's oftentimes choosing between having to choose between those things that um, that constantly happens. Right now, it's like I feel like oftentimes I'm I'm very stubborn, and I really do not want to choose between you know, like um, regionally. You know, it's like I'm splitting my time between New York and Japan, and it's uh, it's tough. But you know, I really. I can't. I really can't leave New York as much as I love being in Japan. So. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I don't know. Life's too short to like just pick mm. one thing. Though. Yeah. Unless mm. you really, you know, some people just want to do that one thing. I just feel like, I mean, maybe I spread myself a little too thin, but I just feel like. Yeah, you do a lot. I mean, you're doing this, and you're doing amazing work, and you know, so. I think yeah, and I run a soccer club here in Brooklyn. <laughs> Oh, amazing! Youth, a youth soccer club because That's soccer's incredible. always been a yeah. big part of my life. So, uh, it's nonprofit. So you know, it's it's we give scholarships to kids and stuff. So that's like a big thing too. That you know, and and I some days I say you know, if I like today I had a really good day in the studio. You know, I woke up, took my kids to school, went to the studio, and just had hours and hours of like good working. And I was like, you know, I could probably do this every single day, and never do anything else. And I said, no, it's actually good that I step away too because i had like you know after i got out of school i had a long time of every day by myself in the studio mm-hmm. i don't know if that's good you know that much of me is good yeah <laughs> i wonder about that too and i think that uh you know there's been moments where you're just dying to to get into studio where you really don't have that luxury and i've definitely had those stretches where um but i do feel that like you know that those moments where um the time is so scarce um, that you really learn uh, how to use that valuable time in studio to the fullest extent. And also, you know, I think I feel like there, in a way, like the um, the night shift is working in the back of the brain. Always, like you're always like kind of plotting, like what am I gonna like? I know that the second I get in there, this is exactly what I need to do. And so maybe like there's, I believe that there's always that kind of tension, and maybe that kind of um, tension between um, the desire to be in there uh, makes your com- kind of um, adds that kind of dynamic in a way to make your studio time um, uh, used in, in it may maybe a more um, devoted or intentional kind of way maybe I don't know but um, but yeah, yeah I definitely feel like that as well like right now I have a little bit you know even though with uh, a new baby it's uh it's it's also a challenge uh, finding yeah. the time to be in there as well but um yeah that so. adds a whole new yes level. <laughs> but it's it's a great challenge and I, I you know every part of um you know balancing that that time is uh completely worth it as well so. yeah for sure you know i i wonder this too because i think i'm lucky and it it just worked out in the way that it did I don't know that I would be able to focus and do these other projects and do a lot of different things that I do if my work was very labor intensive, like just like, you know, like photorealist stuff that took forever. There'd be no way, you know what I mean? So I think because I do work relatively quickly, that helps out. Um, I imagine, you know, in looking at your work and knowing a little bit about the process of it, it, Mm. but I still don't know because your work could take a really long time or through methods you might be able to you know not take forever on it but i wonder yeah i mean i think i mean the way i i tend to always look at it is that um 
you know, our process is always kind of like this negotiation between, you know, our, our um, immediate uh, environmental sort of uh, limitations or, or resources rather sometimes and then like the internal kind of stuff that we come come to the picture with and you know for me it's definitely um, been a way of trying to integrate um, a lot of different aspects of uh, what my sort of uh, wills or desires are and a lot of that you know does have to do with uh, you know like I, I think on one hand it is about doing things faster doing things doing the, more of the things that I like doing and less of the things that I don't like doing and, and so using sort of a what's kind of grown to be a more or less kind of you know kind of crazy elaborate sort of process of making paintings you know has adapted to you know the time that I have uh, the materials that I like um, the kind of solving of puzzles that um, that I find also engaging on a technical level but ultimately towards making images that I care about and that are materially um, engaging and um, and substantial in a way. So, so yeah, for me, I think um, there was also kind of like that split from a very early age, which was uh, I was always intrigued in machines, mechanical and computers, and um, I think anal kind of a very analytical um, uh, and then computational sort of uh, view of things. And so that existed, but again, I really saw that as being entirely uh, almost antithetical, you know, to right. to um, the ways of, of using paint, which you know are which is it's very sensual. It's this very immediate, material, visceral sort of uh, substance to to work with. And I really didn't understand how those two things could inform each other at all. Um, and it wouldn't it wouldn't really be until you know after undergrad, living in New York for a while, working in studio and really trying to figure out like how do how do you make paintings you know how do i how do i go about doing that and i think at a certain point i really struggled with um uh trying to re-understand brush to canvas in a way that made sense to me yeah and um and then there was this moment where a good friend of mine at the time who was working on video game development i was struggling to do the, these swimming pool paintings um, and, you know, my intuitive way of going about it was like, you know, using photographic imagery. Uh, this was 2000, early 2000s, 2001, 2001, I think. And yeah, right when I moved to New York. And so the, the intuitive way to go about it was actually taking, um, underwater photographs or underwater pool scenes, taking underwater photographs, then basing, um, you know, uh, rendering those into kind of linear, um, architectural sort of uh, geometric um, scenes and then basing the paintings um, from there and a friend and then it was just you know it was very difficult doing that they, you know you take photographs underwater they're blurry you know that's what and I, I wanted them to feel um, I wanted it to really talk about the the lane lines and the and the tile and the um, and that kind of stark geometry of this the way that a, an Olympic swimming pool really looks. So a friend of mine, uh, Ryan at the time, he was like, why don't you just, uh, just model that in 3d, you know, it would really be pretty easy to do that. And that just seemed like, 
ridiculous. It seemed like, why would you go to so much trouble to do that? I only need is this one, one view of the <laughs> thing to make a painting from. And eventually he convinced me to do it. And, it, you know, I had never really used 3D software. It had not been something that I had any desire to kind of do. I think that I also had a kind of a, a real, you know, kind of almost, you know, repulsion against spending too much time in the computer. I felt yeah. like, you know, I really wanted to just be the artist in studio making work on the on on canvas and and so in any case, after I did it though, there was like this moment where I realized that something was that felt uh, more right than I had realized that it could in the sense that once you build a model, uh, you can really understand that model in any uh, I mean, any aspect. I think that there's, you know, I remember, you know, thinking about that kind of idea of um, uh, the Platonic sort of ideal is that, you know, we, we only have access through aspect looking at something. And, you know, every aspect yeah. of an object is its to totality and that kind of ideal form, but we never actually can grasp that. But in a virtual, a virtual sense, you do kind of have this ability to traverse through that experience. And I think that that's really what kind of I found so compelling was that, oh, all of a sudden you have, you create this uh, intermediary layer between reality and um, the image. And so that's where I started using uh, 3D uh, kind of virtual um, stuff. It was all, all this stuff was kind of, all the stuff I use even up to this point is mostly stuff that is used in game development of some sort, character development or something yeah. like that. And, and so, you know, that's on one hand developing the imagery and then actually getting the paint onto back onto the surface. Um, I started really being interested in using stencils as a way of translating the kind of digital um, starkness of, of the, those images into something that, that is material. And, the, and stencils made a lot of sense to me. You know, I'd been doing, I'd been making prints actually um, only once I got to New York. I did a little bit during undergrad, but not that much. And then when I got to New York, I started to do more and more printmaking, um, uh, especially screen printing with uh, Fourth Estate, which was uh, an amazing print publisher that did a lot of work with emerging artists and, and stuff in New York. But the thing about screen printing, which I still love, um, is that it's flat. You know, it's very, it doesn't have any surface for the most part, um, unless, you know, you add different things to the ink or the, change the process. Um, and so that was something that uh, I felt like with a stencil you could actually do. You could actually build up layers of uh, material in that way. And that was, yeah. and I think there was something very important about building something that felt substantial in that way. That I think that I was always drawn to painters that uh, used paint in um in a way that was both uh, gesturally expressive, but also had a topography of its of its own that had a richness of of how it was laid onto a surface and could be built up in that way and, and materially um, evocative as well. So, yeah, and even even in a flat sense too. Like if you think about silk screening, it's really, you know, because uh, my work is kind of like that. It's it mirrors that kind of. Um, architectural approach to it of building Absolutely. these layers yeah. you know yeah. and that's printmaking was huge for me too because mm. you know in undergrad we did a lot of it we had a great printmaking program and then grad school yeah. I was like 
you know, teaching it basically and, right. you know, a TA and then I was doing it and it was always there as this kind of like, you know, building like an architectural approach to the image, which I, I think if you use any stencils, whether it's tape or frisket or anything, mm. and you're layering up that image, it's the same thing as printmaking, really. Absolutely, yeah. It's funny, though, people don't look at prints and like, oh, I don't really see the hand in there. It's like it's just implied that, you know, the hand is is building the process of the but print. But it's so much layers. in there, yeah. There's, there's so much about there. Yeah, again, like that's nice, the architecture. And I think that, you know, that's something that I like to always come back to uh, on the digital um, kind of uh, hierarchy that comes um, is that, you know, all of the stuff that we use um, is coming back to printmaking of the most, the, the most complex prints ever yeah. devised, which are micro, you know, the microprocessor are, right. are done in these. And that's our, the architecture that they talk about, you know, in terms of building like the, the uh, the interconnects and like you know the and now going down to like this insanely small nanoscale um, layer of details that are you know making um, the prints that are that that really literally run everything that we do you know yeah. this is this is uh, litho- photolithography basically and right. yeah so it's yeah, kind it's of crazy. yeah it's kind of amazing you know that, that the, the sort of parallels right and then the mm. the fact that now things are being three-dimensionally printed on top of that too yeah, so you're yeah. exploding things out in a different dimension right it's pretty cool it's like it's all uh, my theory is always it's all pretty much the same thing hmm. yeah <laughs> Just, no uh, i think i think that's right you know, you know a million different ways to do it but it's all kind of you know the most gestural things in a way are very similar to the most austere things in a way you know it's i, I agree with that yeah i think people just it's like it's like humans we're all very very similar Mm-hmm. But we're completely different. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's that paradox, right? You know, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, but people love to pick apart those differences. That's their mm-hmm. hobby. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that we're steeped in that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's an endless cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, real quick, geographically, so growing up in Denver was that, um, what? How did your parents end up in Denver? My. Uh, my father was longtime uh, Denver. Um, his, um, I think probably multiple generations. The first was uh, came out with the railroad, okay. so that was a long time ago. Put helped so put the railroad through the through the mountains to the West Coast. So from and way back, way back. So eighteen, I guess it was probably eighteen, eighteen hundreds, probably late eighteen eighteen hundreds. But um, and then my uh, my mom. Uh, she grew up in southern Oklahoma. Okay. Um, they got involved in the oil oil business, and that um, brought them to Denver back in, um, I think, the fifties or sixties. And that's you know that's how the two of them um, met. Was eventually just because of yeah. Um, so the crossroads of that. But. Well, how was creativity? Uh, where is that in the DNA? Yeah, so there's a lot of it because, uh, as you know, uh, my older brother, Tom yeah. Marie, uh, also shows uh, at your gallery. Right, and, right. Um, and so there's so art in the family. Yeah, and so... Uh, <laughs> what's that? There's art in the family. Like yeah. There's a creative so, well, gene so, there. And, so. and so, uh, yeah, my mom, my my mother is a, is a wonderful and amazing artist, and that is clearly the origins of... Um, 
of, of where things started. I mean, I think from a very young age, I uh, remember watching her paint, being in her studio from probably younger than I, I mean, who knows, like two, three years old, maybe those early, early memories. And um, so that's clearly where where some of it starts and then, you know, nurture in nature, I guess. But um, but also, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, older brother, Tomary, watching yeah. him, uh, and, you know, like the two of us approach painting in very different ways, <laughs> yeah, right. um, you know, but it, which, which is awesome. You know, we never, I never really felt competitive in a sense because I think that I, I always had a very different way of, of looking at things. And yeah. I think for a long time, um, and my father, you know, being in medicine, um, so there was like that kind of, um, you know, maybe in a way I was kind of, I felt, you know, like I was the, also the middle child, uh, my younger brother, who's also, also makes paintings now, you know, he studied creative writing, but you know, so the, all three of us maybe on that way, but I felt maybe more than, uh, my, my two brothers sort of in the middle of that, of like the science and the art in a way. And I, I think early on, I really did feel like maybe science was the way that made the mo most sense. I think at first I was very interested in marine biology and then physics and um, particle physics and things like that. And then um, eventually it was clear that those things were not going to work out uh, for a number of reasons. But um, art was where I ended up but it was definitely edited through different means than Tomary. Tomary was uh, always, um, I think, coming out of it, you know, steeped in art history, really a deep love for painting on, you know, the most, uh, um, from, you know, the, the clearest level coming, you know, from Renaissance to, you know, all the way up. And um, and you can see it. You can see it in his work, going up through the abstract, um, you know, heart in his work with his understanding of, of of yes, material, but also the gesture in a way that was maybe there for me at a certain point. But I think that I had always had this systems view, this this need to insert a a a model on top of everything <laughs> right know? it would be so just, interesting yeah. to uh to do i don't know if you've done this like a 23 and me and and see if you genetically line up more with your mother than your or you with your father than your mother i need to and, do that that would be and vice versa for Tom, yeah. like you know what i mean it, yeah. to see if like is there more mom in him or more dad like science in you you know what i mean right yeah i yeah. wonder if it would shake out you know it's crazy what they can do these days as far as like reading your medical tendency like all this stuff you know oh yeah no i did 23 and me oh you did it yeah i was i did it pretty early on so i think that uh, i always get like notices for like yeah you should really upgrade to the newest chip because i think <laughs> that the chip that i did was probably one of the very early ones and it probably doesn't have as good of um not as good of the readout yeah so. but did you did anything surprise you in it yeah there were some uh some hidden gems that that kind of popped out. There was uh, <laughs> some, you know, distant but significant little blip of Nigerian uh, ancestry. Sure, why cool. not? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I was like, and then you know, and and then that was I, I think on, um, uh, I think that that was on my 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 mother's side. He's like, oh yeah, there was you know the dark, the tall, dark, uh, handsome guy from you know, the nineteenth century. Yeah, it was probably you know. 
but um, stuff like that. And then, uh, yeah, mostly just, I mean, European, total European mutt yeah. <laughs> all right. over the place. So, right. you know. Various whiteness. Yeah, various various levels of whiteness. But did you Ashkenazi, get the Native American? Because we got the, we got yeah, the Native yeah, American. Yeah, so that's actually pretty clear from my mother's side in Oklahoma. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah. Either, yeah, great-grandmother um, was part Cherokee. Yeah. And they were, you know, they all ended up there, a trail of tears. And yeah. so it was pretty, pretty rough history. But, you know, right, that's, right. Um, but I don't know, you know, I don't know. It's not clear how much. But, yeah, that was definitely there as well, so... Yeah, well, um, Denver is a nice place, you know. Denver is a is a nice place now, and it it's nice now, in a different way than it now, was nice caveat. when I grew up. I mean, it was no, it was always nice uh, yeah. for me. I I actually kind of miss um, the Denver that I grew up in, and it was back then. It you know downtown was the place that we hung out with. You know, you know, we'd go meet up at you know friends in the nineties, go to the coffee shops and things like that. But it was a dusty train yard with viaducts that we'd walk over to go to the coffee shop um, that we'd hang out at. And there was something about it. I mean, there's, it was very much had that feel of a Western, a Western dusty kind of cow town city where even though at the downtown, I remember being downtown once and seeing an, an actual tumbleweed blowing down <laughs> the, uh, Sixteenth Street or something right, right. like that, and it was so that it had that feeling. Now you know it's very much more built out. There's there's tech companies there. It's a yeah. whole other um, thing. But so I kind of miss like the the um, the wildness and dustiness of the rustic uh, Denver. Yeah, yeah. And there was something very nice about that. Um, when I was growing up, I don't know how my parents um, let me do it, but Tomary would take me to um, punk and hardcore shows that were like. I don't even know how they would throw them, but they were like in the middle of nowhere in the train <laughs> train yards in a bombed out, you know, um, concrete building. Um, and I guess they had generators or somewhere to do the shows. But, you know, I must have been, you know, maybe 11, maybe uh, 12. Never too young. Yeah. No, but it was, but yeah but that was amazing. You, know, you got exposed to yeah. some probably some pretty gnarly stuff. Oh, yeah. It was pretty... I mean, yeah, there, I, mean, I remember... A couple times where you know the the mosh pits got pretty nasty yeah and just realizing that yeah this is you know, we're in the middle of nowhere like there's no nobody around here right i'm always <laughs> amazed at those that, stories you know, the time that there's no there's no adults that are going to break this up and right pretty intense. you're on your own kid yeah yeah <laughs> i've heard stories of people i know you know grew up in new york city or came when they were really young and going to like cbgb's back in the day oh yeah i can't imagine just the smell must have been like yes. rugged, you know, but you know, things were different back then. Kids yeah. were given a little more license to, to do, you know, whatever it was. I, yeah. I, the city, you know, the city is not, you know, I mean, I, I kind of yearn for, uh, the city that I never really experienced that much. I mean, I, I came to New York when I had some friends in the mid nineties who were starting it, going to SVA and stuff. And, and they were all living on, you know, alphabet city, more like a a b maybe a little bit of c but and you know it was different this was like during giuliani years and i remember um that it just had a different feel like it was a it was a different kind of yeah it was you know it, it was i mean now it's you know it's gotten a lot you know a lot more dangerous than it was pre-chem um 
pre-COVID, of course. But back then, yeah, there was dangerous, but it was also more fun. There was a, a, a kind of playground aspect to the city in that right. way. And, yeah. and it was also just, you know, it was wild. You know, like my friend who I would visit, he was living on, um, on 5th and A. And uh, there, was this, uh, there was a huge squat building next to him. It's just um, you know a lot of a lot of you know punk kids and and just uh, just squatters who were living in there. And the week after I was I was there once, uh, Giuliani had a tank roll up, like an actual NYPD <laughs> blue. It didn't have like guns on it. It was just like a battering ram. Right. But it was an actual tank, and he just rolled in there with you know, I guess what looked kind of like like a SWAT team. They broke down the door got everyone out and then immediately had a wrecking crane came and they just destroyed the building. I mean, it's wow. completely illegal, but they, there's nothing you could do. So yeah. that was kind of like the wild wildness of it, you know, and then some of those squatters actually got, you know, got to own their buildings, you know, after all yeah. that. But, yeah. It's crazy. I know some know. people who've been in their places for a really long time and they have really nice places Yeah, and yeah. you know, they just grandfathered into that must be nice (laughs) no for sure i mean it was but it was yeah it had a different feel but i think that i just caught a glimpse of that because that was like probably i don't know i want to say like 96 97 or something like that and you know it was very 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 soon after it was uh, you know you could feel the the city changing oh Um, yeah the first time i went to brooklyn was to visit an sva student Mm. in the early 90s and they lived right by the williamsburg bridge and I, i also can swear that I saw a tumbleweed going down Broadway. Oh, nice! All right. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah, I mean, nothing. It was yeah. it was a ghost town, and yeah. a little creepy, you know. It was a little creepy. It was dangerous. I mean, I remember Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah. GMZ to... was brutal back then. Yeah. I mean, you were taking your matters into your own hands by taking that train. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think yeah, it was right around that same time. I remember walking over the Williamsburg Bridge, and you know, back then it was in very very bad disrepair yeah and you know huge holes you could look down and actually see the the east river underneath you and <laughs> getting to williamsburg and we were visiting a friend who had just moved there and this is poor guy who's an artist from france and he had just moved in and and he was we when we visited him he was really distraught because he's like you know he was in broad like broad daylight mo- moving in and someone saw that he would, was mo- bringing a, a stereo you know into his new apartment and apparently the guy kicked his door in, punched him in his face, and took oh his stereo. <laughs> I was like, no, well, that's rot daylight. And I was like, no, that's, that was Williamsburg. I think it was like on Bedford or something. So, oh, my God. Welcome yeah. to Brooklyn. Exactly, yeah. So it was different. It <laughs> was a different, uh, different Williamsburg. But Yeah. Boy, now it's way different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, when you moved to, you know, out east, mm-hmm. did you keep, because you went back to school, right? You went back I did, to yeah. So it was like kind of. Uh, I think that that was really that point after, um, you know, after two thousand eight. Uh, it really took like a year for me to kind of really see the writing on the wall. You know, when I was at the gallery, and I kind of, um, I, I think two thousand nine, I started applying to grad school, and just be like, well, you know, everything's, um, you know, the economy's gone to shit, um, right. and maybe it's time to go to grad school. And so that's really where I started applying to schools. And I, I had actually applied to MFA programs before and, um, and didn't get in to places that I wanted to go. And so I think by that time I realized that I didn't really feel like doing the MFA thing. And I applied to 
uh, MIT Media Lab and to um, to NYU's uh, ITP, which is kind of similar but very different um, to, to Media Lab. Um, and I ended up going to NYU, and um, for for ITP, which is uh, for people who don't know that it's the uh, Red Burns uh, was the founder, and it's the interactive telecommunications program, which is you know was named in I think the late seventies or early eighties, where telecommunications sounded different. Now it's like telephones and <laughs> right. you know uh, a little uh, antiquated uh, fiber optics or something. But well, how do you um, know about it though? Like what? what? What I led that, you to it? Yeah, I think that it was, um, it could have been my studio mates at the time. Okay. Uh, they had friends that were, that were, um, that were going there. And it's, it's a very interesting program. You know, I think that, you know, um, a lot of different things came out of there. Um, you know, Red Burns, who started it, she, I think, saw, it was the porta pack the, the story goes, the port pack video camera from Sony was, she really saw that, um, and accurately so, as being this incredibly powerful, democratizing um, tool for making for making video work. You know, before that, it's like, you know, video cameras were really big, heavy things that, you know, you couldn't, yeah. you know, no one could afford, and they certainly couldn't be moved around. So there's like a mobility factor, the there was, you know a lot of different aspects to that. Yeah, but, and then otherwise, like, you could shoot, you know, Super 8 or 16, and that's a whole other thing. Um, yeah. You have to pay for, you know, processing, which wasn't necessarily cheap. But video, you could just, you know, record over it. You know, if you didn't like it, you could, and it was, you know, tape was not that expensive. Um, so she saw that technology um, was enabled creativity in a, in a specific way that uh, a program based around that paradigm was uh, something that would be really, really powerful. And I think that, um, you know, that was, you know, in that, and in, in that vision, you know, like luckily I got to, to meet her and hang out with her. She was a really incredible woman. She since, you know, passed away, I think a few years ago. And, um, but she uh, really, um, I think, created an incredible space there. I mean, she would have her seminar class, which was called um, Applications, but, you know, she had incredible people come visit and talk. You know, it was Vito Acconci, um, Jaron Lanier, you know, um, God, I can't remember everyone that came through, but it was a it was a pretty amazing um, experience just in, in the seminar for that. And then, um, but yeah, ITP is, a, is an unusual place. I think that... You know, the, maybe the easiest way to kind of describe it is that I think there's three generally general classes of people that come through, and like it's like artists that want to um, become more technical or more um, versed in digital tools in a way, and then there's people that come from a science or tech background who want to become more creative, and then there's the middle, which is probably the entrepreneurial people who just want to make the next, uh, you know, billion dollar company or something. But, right. and yeah. so those, those three, and they kind of overlap in, in, you know, various ways. But for me, it was really, um, I think part of it was that I felt very uneasy using digital tools to make work. And I think that it was because there was something intuitively unsettling about using tools that I didn't understand fully or didn't fully, you know, um, feel in control 
Right. And so I think that that was a big thing. And when I went to ITP, I really uh, made that decision that like, I may not be able to really make art for these two years. And I just immersed myself in code, uh, learning to understand um, code as much as I could. And um, my thesis project was like, you know, uh, it was it was an interesting project, but it was basically a way of exploring very very large um, sets of images. I mean, it was like a maybe a more glorified sort of uh, Apple Photos, or uh, but it was you know it was a way of spatially um, displaying, um, and it used a very um, basic kind of machine learning to be able to do that. So you could. Um, take a higher dimensional, highly dimensional space and uh, flatten it into a two-dimensional human traversable sort of or understandable sort of realm in theory. Yeah. In theory, but right. <laughs> we, we, so I, I built this thing um, with uh, some friends of mine, my friend Johnny Liu, who I later started a company with, and then uh, my friend Akira uh, Shibata, who is actually a physicist who, who um, helped discover the Higgs boson Whoa. and <laughs> that's big <laughs> yeah I mean it's a paper with like hundreds of names on it when they published it but he was okay. his names on it so and he's a great he's a great guy he's actually doing a lot more work in the intersection of kind of creativity and, and computational stuff in, in Japan right now but um but nice. in any case that was yeah that's why I went there and I came out the other end sort of with my head uh totally um kind of in a in a you know i guess in an expectedly different kind of uh place and it took a couple of years to figure out first did i want to make paintings still and then how how do you make paintings after going through all that mm -hmm. and that's really where everything you know uh, took shape is you know really having this deep understanding you know of you know maybe i couldn't write all of the software that i need but i could modify it i can make i still make you know some basic tools when I need them, um, and being able to understand code on a on a certain level, you know, um, was I felt very important. You know, it was a, it was a really good thing. But it's not, you know, I think that, you know, I'm I wasn't necessarily built for it. My math sucks. Uh, you can write code without math. Uh, there's, you know, the logic is if you're good, if you can understand the logic, you can get by. Um, having good math helps a lot, um, but. In the end, you know, it was it was definitely a language that I felt, you know, like it's it's a it was like an un uh, a less exercised part of my mind that um, going through that really felt invigorating because it was like oh wow I can do this and I can understand it and it's something that you know I haven't exercised and it was really really fun to learn how to do that but at the same time I think the some people I think are really um, fulfilled by sort of a string of puzzles to be solved. And for me, I felt oftentimes that while it is fun to solve things and get them to work um, on either a code level or some other kind of systems level, oftentimes they didn't feel like those, um, those individual sort of uh, uh, victories ever sort of interconnected to something um, that kind of manifested into something of, of uh, clearer meaning. And, and so I think that that's really what led me back to doing, you know, needing to do 
studio work again and making paintings again because and and using some of those tools for sure but um really that was sort of a departure away from i think the more or less um cohesive tech world right um which was it was an, it was it was great i really loved um working with um my friends there and started a company called brooklyn research we did it was sort of a on one hand a nonprofit um that did a lot of educational stuff around technology it also provided um, affordable workspace for people that were doing things with technology of different sorts, um, you know, uh, digital um, manufacturing, of, of prototyping, that kind of thing, and also code and also app development and whatnot. But then it was also doing, um, I guess, a, a consult consultancy work, you know, for you know a lot of uh, experiential. Uh, marketing things like that, and yeah. you know, it was like, and a lot of that was fun. You know, when we had big clients like Google, it was great. You could do all kinds of amazing and fun things. But then, some other clients were not not as fun. And so, right. so I had a short stint in that, in a way. I mean, not not that short really. But it was, you know, it was a good way of getting out of grad school, making, being able to survive, and also building a community there. Right. And a lot of those people are still. You know, I mean, I was very much inspired by a lot of different people there, and and um, and so happy I did it. But ultimately, there was a there was a moment where I I needed to kind of um, you know exit and move on. So yeah, and so it seemed that seems to build the framework for kind of like how you got to where you're making what you're making. And mm -hmm. what about you know? There's there's two things that I think enter into the equation. One is this relationship with going to Japan because I know that there's a lot of stuff in the work that's influenced by oh for sure that yeah. so how does that enter and then also the imagery because you know you're talking about this stuff that we're talking about sets up a lot of the process but where yeah. <laughs> where does the sort of imagery the conceptual side of like what you're painting factor in yes yeah we have to go there so um, let's see Japan. Uh, I think that trying to do this in the in the clearest uh, path and and way, but I guess you know sometimes you make decisions early in your life that you don't realize will set the uh, set the groundwork or or a causal sort of chain to get you to um, you know meet your wife in in Japan. Right. Um, but for me, it was uh, you know going to high school and having a choice of language classes, and I didn't want to learn Spanish anymore, and there just happened to be. Um, a Japanese exchange teacher uh, who wow, was that's in, yeah, in public school in, in Denver. Yeah, it was very strange. And so my freshman year, I did a semester of Japanese uh, with Professor Ishii. Uh, we're very sorry. We tortured him. And um, <laughs> <laughs> he had never seen go easy like on him. inner city uh, youth in America. But yeah, we did not go easy <laughs> on him. But he was very sweet. I was probably the nicest person to him, I think. Uh, I was the only person who showed up at his cultural day. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, that that one semester. And then, you know, years later, being at RISD and immediately being drawn to uh, people in the painting department and other departments that were just making amazing work, and they, a lot of them happened to be Japanese. Um, uh, this guy, Yo Miura, was an amazing painter. Um, and so becoming friends with them, and then uh, after school, um, getting, um, you know, coerced into going to visit Japan. And I never really had, you know, I wasn't like a, you know, of course I loved, I loved comic books, I loved um, manga, 
anime to some degree, but not, I was not like one of those guys who, um, otaku. Uh, who, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, an, I was not a, a otaku in that sense. Um, but, you know, with the invitation to go, went to Japan, mind blown uh, on multiple levels. Uh, I think a lot of it was just the visual culture there. Um, uh, the attention to uh, detail and design and everything, uh, but also the landscape. You know, there's just uh, different aspects. So you look at ukiyo-e of the landscape and you think that that is stylized. It's not. That's really what it looks like. Right. You know. Yeah. You know, it's um, so. Anyway, that's how I got there. Um, I was in uh, Nishiyazabu, 2007, uh, going to a friend's um, jazz concert who happened to be a mutual friend of my wife. That's how I met her there. And, you know, subsequent years of uh, long distance stuff. And then eventually um, another disaster, the 2011 earthquake and tsunami and Fukushima disaster um, yeah. sort of uh, made me realize that, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really scary, you know, being there. It was really scary going to the, after we got married in a hurry, going to the U.S. Embassy, and everyone was doing the same thing, trying to get married and get out because they were worried about radiation. Oh, yeah. So that's how I got there. In between, you know, like my first trip to, to, uh, to Japan was 2003, um, and I kept on saying, like, oh, cool, that's, that was amazing. I don't think I need to go back ever again. And I kept on going back every year. Um, and it was just more, you know, and then, and then while I was a dealer, um, I started wanting to show Japanese artists, so I would do studio visits there. And, you know, sadly, you know, that show was supposed to happen in 2009, never happened. But, um, yeah, I think, I guess we could talk about imagery of the most recent work, um, which is probably what is the most interesting to talk about. Um, I think a lot of that really came out of the pandemic. You know, we, we got to Japan, we were supposed to be there for two months, in December 2019 and uh, then stuff from Wuhan started happening and there was a moment where I was like you know I think we should probably get back to New York where it's safe right. and then a couple you know then by the end of our our intended stay it was very clear that that was not a good idea and we ended up staying so two months turned into nine months we were there living in um, in technically Tokyo, but on the outskirts in Takao, which is basically near Takao-san, which is a, one of the closest mountains. And so we're basically near the mountains, pretty countryside and pretty isolated. You know, we were living in a house, just the two of us, my wife and I, and there was something that shifted in the work. I think I had been making things, uh, a lot of the work was imagery that was indirectly figurative. It was an implied Figuration to some degree, um, all mostly using textile patterns. Some use, starting to use um, text in to different degrees. Ways of playing with the tactility of of text and also um, textile patterns in that way. And a lot of that came from kind of deep rooted um, ideas about digitalness and what it means to overlay an agnostic system like a binary uh, sampled um, layer on top of reality and thinking about how uh, textile pattern sort of was 
a nice way of talking about that experience where um, the pattern itself is merely a framework or a structure, but overlaid on top of reality, it distorts and is then renders a duplicate sort of um, version or, or phenomenon of that experience. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the early stuff, uh, the earlier stuff started. It was primarily uh, just textile renderings of textile forms. And it was sort of in between um, kind of an abstract formal sort of language, but something very, very tactile and materially conscious in that way. But maybe it was the isolation during the pandemic I started realizing that um, I wanted to make something that was more directly emotive, that had um, the ability to engage um, with um, different kinds of expressive cult on, on multiple levels of culture, I think, in that level, on that way. So the characters started to emerge. I think at first they seemed like um, more comical. Uh, sort of there's I mean humor has always been there in the work to different yeah. different degrees um, but I think it's always something that I'm starting to learn how to to balance that where there's there's also darknesses <laughs> there's always been a level of darkness in the work as well um, this is I, I think that I would describe I oftentimes describe the work now as being sort of operating on simultaneously on three, three or more levels, which is, you know, maybe the first is uh, self-portraiture. And I think that's definitely there. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe the, the next level is through some kind of uh, science fictional um, way of, of talking about maybe an alternate timelines, uh, ways of engaging with um, ideas that are maybe um, maybe nearly possible, maybe near futures or, or um, uh, parallel futures in some way. And then, um, and so oftentimes like that, you know, that'll be the case where it's like, you know, the characters, I often, I often really think about them as being um, synthetic, uh, synthetic um, pets or synthetic uh, friends or synthetic, um, you know, which may not be that far away. Right. Uh, but I also kind of think about them as the, as um, uh, the uh, in Blade Runner, the um, the guy who was he was suffering from like a degenerative disease. Right, I'm blanking his name right now. But um, he comes home and he has like these these friends that are, that he's made that greet him at the door. And um, those are kind of the characters in your paintings. I think that those are similar. Yeah, there's, they're yeah. definitely very, very similar along some of these characters. And then there, you know, there's like um, labor, uh, labor model, um, android or um, robots, auto autonomous drones. And so these kind of occupy that middle sort of layer, which is, you know, playing with themes that come from near science fiction, maybe. And then, you know, maybe it circles back um, to the more immediate layer, which is ways of talking about our present through those, those two layers, you know, and so it kind of, they immediately become, um, ways of 
trying to make sense of our current moment. Right. It's like a parallel, a parallel world that really is a vehicle to sort of touch on things that are. I think so, and I think that that's you know you're allowed to make jokes, right? um, In the parallel world that maybe you know, like I think um, one of the paintings in the in the most recent show at Miles McHenry was a uh, text painting, which are becoming a new thing that I kind of started doing, which I was kind of very cautious about doing. You know, like I felt kind of weird, you know doing these text-based things. They kind of, you know, both, you know, uh, with Ruche kind of in mind, and then they're also kind of tiptoeing up to the edges of graffiti to some degree. But that one, the, the one in that show, was, uh, was self-driving cars. Right. And I kind of imagined it as being maybe an advertisement in a different world where nobody wants self-driving cars. And so they're almost like a used, sorry, like a used car lot where they're, you know, they're des- desperately trying to get rid of these things. Yeah. But it was also a way of talking about, you know, just, you know, I think really thinking about what it would mean when these things, if these things ever do become a reality, uh, it will become, it, it is a darkly sinister kind of, uh, kind of world that becomes possible. Right. Uh, the way that that will affect labor, the way that it'll affect, um, you know, the. <laughs> Yeah, the way that we uh, think about uh, class and race race differences across, you know, a geography of a city, you know, will be uh, further, you know, uh, skewed in in ways with uh, with that kind of technology. And I think it's not the the stuff that people think about. I think that the paintings I'm making right now, um, you know, they do think about the the dark side of of AI, um, yeah. which I don't, th- you know, it's like it's not. It's not Terminator taking over, you know. The, no, I think we're already in it, don't you think? No, we are. But the, th- I mean, I think that the, the I've been working on this essay that I don't know if I'll ever, um, I'll ever publish. But it's um, titled "The Banality of Data," in the sense that you know, from the, the Hannah Arendt thing, um, and it's really that you know, my view is that you know, the killer AI is not the one you have to worry about. You have to worry about us. You know, we're <laughs> exactly. We're the right. ones building the AI, and we're not nice to each other. <laughs> yeah, so for sure. You know, in in that sense, it's like, you know, the dangers of AI are the fact that it is a black box that you can that gives you plausible deniability on a moral level, and I think that is something that scares the hell out of me. And as much well, as I love this techno, I love. The, I mean, it's these are tools, and they're they're beautiful if they're used in a good way, and there are amazing things. You know, I think there's. You know, looking at um, all of the stuff that neural nets are unlocking, uh, making possible is is incredible. It's it's amazing. But at the same time, you know, it's still us using it, and we're not, you know, we're not yeah. nice to each other. And so, what do you think? You know, when you had Darwinian theory, uh, evolutionary theory that is applied in warped into eugenics or something like that, you know, like it's not that far away. The possibilities are there if it gives you the ability to deny. That you're evil right. because the machine did it you know yeah you could say the same thing about a sword you know it's beautiful oh yeah absolutely absolutely but in the, right, in the wrong hands you know mm. i mean look at the gun situation in our country you know? yeah i mean it's that that's right it's it's always you know weaponry is a form of distancing right right so uh, of different different sorts i mean the, the rock being able to throw the the, the rock as the the initial um uh distancing weapon i'll draw that I'll draw a scary parallel. 
the distancing that the internet does in our ability to communicate and think about each other psychically so, 100 percent. you yeah. know what i mean mm-hmm. uh, that's so i think the the metaphor of the self-driving car or the weapon or whatever is the sort of like tactile you know utilitarian version of what is a systematic degradation of the way that we interact with each other on a a sort of one-to-one level in real life and that's the danger of the internet and the danger of you know the removal of experience of direct you know contact and direct experience is that everything becomes mediated at a point of a complete (coughs) kind of like i know it's upsetting (laughs) 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 but yeah but to where we become numb to that stuff and that is real artificial intelligence in a way that's the danger yeah that's exactly right yeah yeah. Oh, so your paintings are just touching on light, light heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why they, you know, that's why I have to make the characters so cute. Right, right. Because if they, if they looked, you know, even, you know, yeah, that, that's that's why they. By have the way, to, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say but that's no. so Japanese too, because you know, <laughs> like all that cuteness came out of World War Two and a bomb being dropped on the people. That, yes, you know, yeah. So it was yeah. a, a negotiation of you know this trauma, and then finding comfort, but dealing with you know mm. the fact that that could exist in the world you know what i mean it's that's not yeah that's nice i know that there's a lot of different um essays that are, and, and books that have been written on the origins of kawaii but uh, but yeah that, i know that 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 is definitely I, I also feel like it's kind of always been deeply uh sort of present though even even throughout maybe even you know i think sometimes you you go to um different regional versions of shintoism and it's yeah. like i mean it's so i mean there's so incredibly cute right cute, it's, it's cute and then it's like you know there's the flip too like the yokai mm. stuff is pretty oh man pretty yeah i mean the yokai gruesome. stuff is, is pretty <laughs> incredible i mean yeah. the yokai watchi is kind of like cuted it up a little bit but it's yeah, it's a yeah. dark you know there's that dark side of it, you know. Yeah, and I mean, that, there's that shadow side of, an, of of animism there, you know, which yeah. is which is you know, the the dark forest, right? Right. Um, and everything that can can be in it. Um, and the, I mean, the foxes are you know, also incredible, you know. Yeah, that, you know, that, and you know the yeah. the story. I one because you know, as as like a foreigner, you're exposed to these sort of you know cultural tales and all this stuff. And the one that got me early on was you know daruma because daruma was i just thought they were really cool looking mm. you know i was like oh what are these cute like little red things that you want oh, right, yeah but the story of him meditating so long that he lost his arms and legs is kind of dark in a yeah. way yeah there's like I, I know that there's a there's a, a number of especially in, in the buddhist uh, um kind of lore yeah of of uh of different monks um yeah meditating to the point where they yeah they uh, you know turn to turn into uh different substances and then evaporate right. away and you know it's yeah. like this you know but it's it's never yeah it's uh let's yeah actually so i didn't i never asked you but what is your connection to japan yeah um to, i've just been married to a japanese woman for oh, over 20 years so oh, but too. she grew up in jersey so it's a little less uh i, I didn't I, we met at macy's when we both worked in the windows well, um but but extended family and you know i've been showing there for a long time and yeah, just have been yeah, going right. going for a long time and you know and i've all but even you know i tell the story of i i went to see a show 
I grew up in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie Museum, and it was like mm. Van Gogh and Ukiyo-e, and like the sort of you know the conversation between that work. And I didn't know anything about Japanese prints at that point. I knew Van Gogh, and I loved Van Gogh, and I was just blown mm. away by it. And I was like, "What is this stuff?" Because I grew up on like Warner Brothers cartoons. Of course, me too. I love Warner Brothers. Yeah. Cartoons. So like you know Fritz Freeling and like Mel yeah. Blanc. And that yeah. that when I look at Ukiyo-e, it makes sense. It's like a mm. similar. Yes. sensibility yeah. so yeah. it's just always been something that i've been into and you've done ukiyo-e no never no i've never well, done a woodblock in my life we need to fix that <laughs> yeah i know it's funny because because i've just started doing it with the you know with uh, the adachi institute in yeah. Tokyo, and it's i mean i just feel like so i mean it's oh, such an incredible honor to be able to work with these people i mean it's you know amazing i mean such a yeah such an opportunity so but your work would be your work would be so perfect for it so i wonder would it i don't i I feel like i have such a reverence for it that i feel like is it is it too close you know what i mean Hmm. yeah there may be uh, i don't know i've done screen prints which i feel like work pretty well i mean it would be cool to do ukiyo i mean i've i've studied i've i love this stuff and uh you know i've been fortunate enough to travel around and go to museums and stuff and see that stuff in person which has been pretty great i just got to see um before we came back there was a an exhibit of uh hokusai manga oh those are good those, those are really good book this i just bought a the book from the catalog which was pretty good yeah but it was an amazing it was so amazing to see all that stuff i'd never seen i'd seen some of it but but not everything and it was it you was know great. what it reminds me of um mm-hmm. When people know Warhol, they know like the screen prints and all the the you know the the soup cans and shit. Yeah. But um, his line drawings from when he was an illustrator. Are oh my god! Amazing. Yeah. And it's like yeah. Hokusai. When you look at Hokusai, you know you think of his prints, you know. Mm-hmm. But the line work in those sketches are amazing. Or Da Vinci, he had that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he had you know Mona Lisa, but then when you see his sketchbooks with the the water and I mean, it just blows you away. Absolutely. Yeah. Good draftsman. <laughs> um, so uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you too is nowadays mm. in the studio, um, is it music? Is it silence? Is it podcasts? Is it Netflix? I listen to, I think it goes through through stages, you know. Um, there was, I, and the music, when it, when it is music, the music is, is a deep influence in the work, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I think that it was... Uh, some of the the first work I I made with stencils, I went deep into like uh into uh, <laughs> this is so embarrassing, but I mean it's not I mean I I I still love a lot of it, but uh, I went deep into vaporwave. Uh, oh instead. yeah, I thought you were gonna say like Carly Rae Jepsen or something. Oh well, now yeah, that would be cool too. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, but I, great though. Yeah, for, I love vaporwave. It's still but it's yeah, and it was really and there was something about it that just like put me into this groove. Um, thinking about how those paintings were evolving and that was very I think it was very instrumental I think that you know it was um, uh, really important and then you know but you know it, it, it comes and goes like I think that um, I've been listening to yeah some Japanese stuff lately um, some younger kind of electronic pop kind of Hit me with it I need I need some oh yeah so uh, yeah and I need to to promote um, uh zombie chung she's amazing don't know uh, it yeah i think that you, you should check her out she's great um and uh, 
who's another one that uh, I want to say uh, Zhang Lu. She's so these are so Zombie Chong and maybe uh, Zhang Lu. They're both, um, I guess, probably half half Chinese, half Japanese, or maybe they're just Chinese living in. Um, living in Tokyo, but there's, but they're very interesting. So, I mean, I think that they have a, a unique sound that, um, it has a, it doesn't have the kind of crisp produced polish that a lot of, uh, kind of elect electronic or pop acts that would come out of, you know, the, the, um, the production pipeline yeah. that is, you know, they're, they're not produced in that way. And so I think that they have a kind of rawness and realness that is really nice. On the other hand, then, um, you know, bands like like Chai are great. There's also, oh, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chai's Chai is right there. They're, yeah. I, I mi- I've missed seeing them live um, twice, which has bumped me up. But they're really great. So I listen to some stuff like that, but also podcasts. I think one of the podcasts that I can't um, uh, recommend enough is the Santa Fe Institute uh, Complexity podcast, which is amazing. Writing that down. Don't yeah, know it. that's a great one. Um, so I listen to. I listen to that quite a bit, um, and also Jim Rutt. He um, Jim Rutt's a great, really interesting guy. He also has a connection with the Santa Fe Institute, and, um, which, you know, um, if I if I remember correctly, Santa Fe Institute is very much systems uh, system science and across multiple interdisciplinary um, located in in, sci- in in Santa Fe. But a lot of interesting ideas coming out of there, like Jeffrey West, the idea of scale, um, scale power law stuff um, through biology and also cities and whatnot and all that kind of stuff. I, I just find that stuff so, so interesting. Yeah. So many interesting people um, that kind of intersect in, at Santa Fe Institute. Um, so yeah, a lot of, yeah, a lot of stuff that seems to be connected to that, but um, yeah, I don't know. I feel that, you know, there's certain kinds of work. I can't do computer work and listen to a podcast. It's just, I think it's too right, much right. left brain. It's like left brain on left brain and it kind of short circuits, but yeah. I can do um, podcast and do physical painting. Right, and, right. Um, yeah. Were you, uh, back in the day, were you a drum and bass person? I did a little bit, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, like the square pusher, Apex oh, Twin yeah, yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, Apex Twin, I was actually, I just pulled out, um, my wife had never heard, I, uh, we have... You know, for some reason, with the baby, the baby really loves the the record player, and I so thought I started you were pulling say out. Twin. <laughs> well, no, she well she does actually. So the so uh, we're, I was pulling out old vinyl, and my wife's like, "What's this?" And I was like, "Oh, that's um, Apex Twin Ambient Works." Oh, and, nice. And I had like the, an old vinyl, like the brown vinyl. Um, so I put that on, and she's like, "Oh, this is amazing." I was like, "Yeah." She's like, "I haven't I haven't listened to this in years, but it's it is really good." Yeah. And um, so that was like the Apex Twin, but yeah, so that's like you know very different from um, the um, the harsher stuff. Window but, liquor, uh, like yeah, window stuff. liquor. Yeah, <laughs> it, get a, it got a little video. crunchy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, that's disturbing. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a while, but that yeah, that was uh, yeah. He's he's a visionary for yeah, sure. Yeah, Square Pusher does that too, though. He'll yeah, have songs yeah. that are just like, you know, like blow up your face and then he has mm. these most beautiful like sort of like quiet you know amazing pieces too yeah that's very true yeah yeah the best of both worlds i don't know why but i was just curious if you went into a tr- i mean because there's something like sort of heady scientific but but 
sort of uh, ethereal at the same time. It's like a combination I, of I technology. That's, that's nice, yeah. And, and, yeah. and ethereal beauty to it as well, yeah. which is nice. What about movies? What's your go-to? Are you a film guy? I, I mean, am. I'm I not a I'm not a huge film guy, but I, mm. I'll go to certain things. Do you have some things that you're really into? Um, Are I you watching that. anything currently that's on your radar? Um, the only one that's in the theater or that I, I really want to see, but I haven't, you know, with the baby, I haven't been able to get out you're to not, the theater as much. Taking but, it to um, the, the, no, the surround sound cinemaplex. No, I'm sure she'd love it. Well, we have like, you know, we did get like the, the ear the earphone things or the oh yeah the nascar the nascar head thing yeah so we could probably take her um but uh yeah i do want to see everything everywhere all at once i mean i think that yeah i haven't seen that either i haven't seen it i'm I'm waiting i'm sadly waiting for it to go streaming next week and then i'll watch it but um look i don't want to bum you out but my kid's 15 and I still don't go to movies. Something happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I stopped. Well, I think the, 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 the kids, kid. do, the, do the kids even go to movies anymore? Do they, do they care at all? So. Uh, well, pre COVID they would sometimes like if they really want to see one, yeah, they, they get like, all their friends they, together, you know, but it has to be something really like, it's going to be like a, what, like a Marvel thing or it's going to be, no, I think it know. can just be, well, sometimes it can also just be like uh, post COVID just getting out. Like we, mm. we took, all four of our teams our soccer teams to a tournament like a collegiate tournament in maryland and uh and we drove them in vans and one night after the games we took them to the mall and they were like can we go to the movie please can we go to the movie and they went to see top gun <laughs> nice and it, there wasn't a many oh, i, I want to see top gun i mean they I, went I, to I see will top admit, gun I will admit but they loved it. it yeah i mean i've been thinking i mean at first i was like do i want to see that but the original <laughs> top gun was such a uh, an important cultural piece of propaganda on many, many yeah. levels when we were kids, because it was really, you know, I, I will never forget like the the Soviet fighter pilots with the black, you know, they're just evil. They have no person. They're they're not people. They're like the evil yeah. um, others. Sure. It's just like Rocky. Yeah. It was yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the same right. thing. Like Russians were just, you know, yeah. it was Cold War basically. Yes. Yeah, and so it was. It was like just I never forget when Top Gun came out, but it was it was right before. Uh, that time you know it was just at the end right like before the war would be like yeah Maybe something later. like that right yeah well look how we, look at how our united states russian relations have changed since then. oh oh yeah they've they've just uh improved so much great. yeah <laughs> i want to read that new uh, speaking of the end of history um i do want to read that new fukuyama book oh i forget the name of it but oh what's it called yeah um I'm blanking, but I like him a lot. I think that he's an interesting, you know, you know, he oftentimes doesn't, he's sort of maligned in the way that people interpreted his, uh, his first kind of statement around the end of history, but it wasn't necessarily seen as a good thing. (laughs) It hasn't worked out so well, (laughs) but, but you soccer though, look at this though. I've got, um, a a signed signed soccer ball with, uh, by the Columbus crew. Oh, nice. I just went out to Columbus to do my first uh, public um, artwork, and it's a, at a, it's a, a bridge. Uh, oh, I painted. saw the images. Oh, yeah. yeah it looked really yeah. cool. Wait, well, that, that how was it related into, to MLS? Was it, or well, did you just go to a game? No, so the, so the, develop, like the, the bridge is going into this new development with the brand new Crew Stadium, which is like the, apparently oh, the, right, the most high-tech right. 
yeah. uh, fancy stadium in all of, um, of MLS. And so we got to go there. We got to, I got to have a picture taken with the team and nice. it's really awesome. So are you a fan of soccer? I or mean, was... I, I, you know, uh, compared to you, I, I can't, I can't say that I am, uh, but I do love it. I do love soccer, but I don't. I don't follow it. I guess that's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. But you got to go to the stadium. And I got to go and see, man. I, you know, I got a, an incredible in-depth. Not just the stadium. I also got to go to their, um, to their training facility as well. Nice. And Isn't it amazing? It's like insane. In person? It's totally you, you insane. You get it when you're in it. I got to so, go on the pitch and like be in the middle of the stadium oh. as well. It was so so much fun. Well, our our youth club were partners with the New York Red Bulls. So we got to take our kids out and scrimmage on the field. And when you're there and you smell the grass and you're in the middle of those fields, because those new soccer fields are nice. They're not, you know, they're really well made. Yeah. It's, you can feel that energy, you know, it's, it's amazing. Absolutely. I'd never been. I I go to, when I, we go, yeah, when we go to Japan, we go to, my, my cousin is a huge Kawasaki Frontale fan. So, and he does video stuff for the J League. So we end up going to games every time I go. We just go check out games and the atmosphere there is so great for yeah, soccer. Man. Yeah. Yeah, Japan is great for soccer, for sure. It, it is. And you can just buy like sushi and stuff and bring it in. Like you yeah. bring in your own food, which for yeah. an American, that concept is like bizarre. bentos are definitely you know (laughs) they they really need to be understood better i know on the train too uh we can if we start talking that stuff we'll be yeah no i know we will we'll we'll do it uh, we'll do it off we we could do that (laughs) people are like geez i really need to go to japan right now yeah uh but yeah it's amazing the food and all that stuff so that columbus thing must have been amazing it was amazing in the public is so cool isn't it to see work large scale like that it's um I mean, yeah, that was, you know, it was a year in the making and most of it was just negotiating because, yeah. um, you know, CSX owns, the train company owns the bridge. They don't want any, you know, initially they didn't really want to, you know, they're, they're incredibly um, serious about security and anyone messing with their stuff. And so yeah. uh, at first they didn't want to deal with anyone. Luckily, one of the people um, on, the, um, on the project had worked at CSX, so they kind of knew how to talk to them, um, and eventually was able to negotiate this whole thing to happen. And so that took a long time. And then the actual execution of getting the paint on the bridge, you know, took maybe like a month or so, all in all. And yeah. it wasn't that bad. But and the and the crew that painted it, they were amazing. Yeah, they were really good guys. So that's really cool. Yeah. I got I had a I got lucky enough to do um, art for the Gimbi Shinkansen, which was like an art oh, bullet train yeah. that went from uh, it went from uh, Echiko Yuzawa to Niigata, and mm-hmm. it was like one train, and each car was a different artist. I, and I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I'd spent like uh, a couple weeks doing research on that line to Niigata mm-hmm. and taking photos yeah. and stuff, and I did animations based on it. But it was the way they do trains there is so amazing, you know. So it's, to have that yeah, experience uh, was was pretty cool. Did you go to Niigata? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah I've been, and I went to the Aberex, like uh, the, uh, you know, their soccer team. Of course, I yep. had to yeah. go do that, go to their gift shop and <laughs> check that awesome. out. You know. Yeah, Niigata's beautiful. Um, it really it's, is. It's, really nice. it's pretty There's quiet. Also, it's very quiet. And then uh, my, my wife's family is actually um, originally from, from Sado, Sado Gashima, which mm-hmm. is the, the island off the coast. 
of Niigata. Yeah, that has a uh, very interesting past. Very interesting history. Um, <laughs> intellectuals were exiled there at one yeah. time, and they, yeah. so it was sort of like you know people who were dangerous, had dangerous little, ideas, and then little Alcatrazzy. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very interesting history for sure. Yeah, but that area is really nice. I mean, I love going to Inaka because it's just... Me too. I mean, actually, there's something, you know, there's, like I said, like the landscape, it's, it's, there's nothing like it. And it's a different, um, there's no, I mean, there's, to me, there's like no question like why, why the animist sort of spirit lives on because it's, it's like you could feel it, you know, when you go there, whether you believe it actually or not, but it's, um, the place is alive in different ways than... Yeah. Totally. We're thinking Akia eventually. Yeah, we're we're working on it right now, actually. Nice. Um, the place that we're at right now is is good, but we're we want to get a little bit um, just a little bit more space where we can have our own kind of thing. So we're thinking, yeah, maybe Akia with an old farm and being able to build a a studio there. I mean, it's um, crazy it's, how cheap yeah. you can get it. It's yeah. I mean, you know, if you're not adverse to being out there, you can get it. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it seems like oh yeah, it, work, it just depends on how far you want to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. that's <laughs> yeah how how rustic yeah you want to get. Cool. But I forget well, there's an Instagram account that maybe you follow that the uh, cheap houses Japan or something like that. I think I've seen that, yeah, but I follow a YouTube channel. Yeah, I think where there's they, a couple they different show ones. Yeah. people renovating them and talking about them and just yeah. sit there and salivate. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, just the time. It's just, you know, when you have a kid too, and like a family, mm-hmm. it's the, yep. the time and the logistics of it. But that's it. Yeah, um, so. it's real tempting. I mean, you pulled it off though, doing the. It's the it's working for now. Yeah, I think that it, we're we're trying to understand. I mean, like, you know, my daughter is, you know, has just begun. But you know, there's a there will be a certain point where it's like, well, where is she going to go to school, and how how good at Japanese do you want her to to be able to be so right um you know those are all different difficult questions but yeah um well we'll have to do we'll have to sit down and hang out and talk we definitely we definitely do and we should probably um uh get um the respective uh wives together as well they might be they might yeah. have fun as well so for sure yeah well um so the show the show was just up yes right yeah it just, and, just um, came down what do you have anything else coming up that you want to plug and talk about where can people find your work and you know share everything yeah um i think there's definitely so the next show in japan will probably be um in spring probably april and this then is maki yeah Ma- at maki fine arts yeah yeah and um and then after that probably new york 2023 will be in the fall and nice. probably a bunch of stuff in between. I'm working on a. I know that this is like you know the. Um, I'm wor- I've been working on a digital art project, um, which is kind of you know fully digital thing that I've ever done, um, which is kind of this NFT project, which I know like yeah, yeah everyone else is doing that. It has been sort of it's a. Uh, crashed and burned multiple times but i think it's actually a really interesting project i'm working with a team of guys who i love called um, design systems international who are just amazing people if, um, they really build websites with a whole different kind of paradigm they don't just build websites they build systems that allow you to modify your website 
and not just nice. like a CMS, but actually like you can tweak the, the typography and, you know, have dynamic logos that are generated through algorithmically and um, nice. adaptive sort of designs. They did, I think they did all of the logos for the, for MIT Media Labs, um, mm-hmm. which were, um, I think, uh, yeah, they, I think, that, yeah, they were generated um, to be, um, to be, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, they're incredible. And so, yeah, it's going to be whatever we, we end up coming up with, uh, it'll be worth, worth all of the, the weight. And yeah, it the NFT like side of it will only be, you know, I mean, the, my, my thing is that I actually want to make the cheapest NFT possible. <laughs> because right. um, the whole idea is that it's a, uh, it's going to be, I don't want to give too much of it away. But it's a, basically, it's, it's a, it's a generative volumetric level of, of, of an artwork. So it'll be nice. something that you can customize and make um, that's based off of something that I, I built. But, um, but yeah, hopefully it will be very affordable. So Sounds cool. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, it was, it was really great to talk. It was awesome. This was so good. Thank you so much for, for inviting me on. This was just uh, so much fun. You bet. And the show was amazing, by the way. It looked great. The space was great. It just it was a really cool show. So I, congrats I mean, on that. Being too. able to show with Tom as well. Um, yeah. Tom LaDuke was, was pretty incredible. Cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. It was good to talk. Awesome. Yeah. Sound of Vision is recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by checking out the website, soundofvisionpodcast.com, or Instagram, at soundofvisionpodcast. You can check out more about my work at brianalfred.net or at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Many thanks to Alex for taking the time out to talk. Many thanks to Weird Inside for the intro music. Michael Lovett for the introduction. Many thanks to you for listening. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors for supplying me with such amazing paint. Many thanks to Fulcrum Coffee for sponsoring the podcast and fully caffeinating me every day of my life, pretty much. It's that much, yes. I know I've been beating it like a drum over and over again but if you have a chance please check out why i make art contemporary artist stories about life and work from the sound revision podcast the book is 25 dollars the forward the foreword is written by rishikesh hereway an old friend who does the song exploder podcast he did the west weekly home cooking the new podcast called partners he's amazing He's also in band, the 1AM Radio. Check out his music. And uh, there's like 30 artists featured in here. Everyone from Diana Al-Hadid to Robin Williams to James Sienna to Allison Janae Hamilton to Clinton King to Liz Nielsen, Tony Mattelli, Heather Day, Inca Essenhigh, Louis Fatino, Dominic Fung, and so many more. There's snippets of the, uh, the podcast in quote form. There's some of the sketches from the guest book that I have. There's a lot of stuff in here, a lot of pictures. It's a pretty good handy little book that's thick and full of inspiration. You can carry it around with you anywhere. I know, I'm really excited about it. So $25, you can get it at Altilier Editions. 
or you could get it at Artbook, or you could get it at Barnes & Noble, or Amazon, or wherever. But thank you for uh, supporting the podcast. Got some really cool episodes coming up, people I'm very excited to talk to and for you to hear. So stay tuned.